I'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today, as we continue our studies through this wisdom book, uh, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 10, and we're going to take our reading and our study through chapter 7, verse 14. Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 7, 14, and as you look at that text, you may be saying to yourself, well, that's a strange way to break things down. Uh, Why didn't we just have uh, Pastor Andrew finish out chapter 6 last week, three more verses, he could have done it, and, uh, and pick up in chapter 7. There's, there's a method to the madness, though, and, and especially because uh, this is uh, one of these texts full of Proverbs now from Solomon, and Proverbs tend to come at us kind of scattershot. They're hard to get our hands around. I want to just give you a preview of what we're going to see here before we read the text so that as we go through it, you know where this text is headed. I want you to notice especially that there are bookends around the Proverbs that we're reading, and they make the same point. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. And here's, here's the line. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? There are these questions that are looking to be answered. And we see that same idea show up again in chapter 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The same language, and that is uh, drawing an outline around the text that we're going to be looking at today. There is this question, how do we live in a world that is outside of our control? How do we live when we can't know and can't control what will happen next. And the Proverbs in chapter 7 will uh, give us an answer, at least in part, to those questions. And that's why we've broken that down this way. And so hopefully that will help you to see this as we walk through and understand what it is that we're seeing as we're reading. So before we read Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 7, 14, please join me one more time in prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, this is your word, and we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be among us. You have already been among us as we have sung your praises and offered prayers to you, but now we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds, that we would understand and receive your word as you have given it to us, knowing, O Lord, that your word is pure and true and righteous altogether. Lead us through this word to yourself, through Jesus Christ we pray in his name, amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes, beginning to read in chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under the pot, 
so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, what do you do when you realize that there is nothing you can do to change anything? We all have those moments of realization where it dawns on us that none of our struggling, none of our striving will be able to change an inevitable outcome. Maybe the loss of a relationship. It may be the death of a loved one. It may be an illness or an accident that leaves you disfigured or disabled and try as hard as you can. There is nothing you can do to make your life and the future that you're looking at any different than it seems to be. And so what do you do? That's the question that Solomon's struggling through as we round the corner here into chapter 7. You notice there is almost an element of grief in these verses at the end of chapter 6. You hear Solomon breathing out these desperate sounding questions almost like a balloon being deflated. Who knows, verse 12? Who can say? Where can we go to find anything better than what it looks like we can see on the horizon? In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote her book on death and dying. And she was the one that, that summarized, systematized what we know now as the five stages of grief. And, and that was according to her research and her work together with uh, terminally ill patients over decades. You, you've probably heard different versions of uh, these stages. Sometimes they're expanded into seven, but five is the OG. It's the original model. It became known as the Kubler-Ross model, and, and you've heard them. It's, uh, it's denial and it's anger. It's bargaining and it's depression, and then finally acceptance. I don't have any desire to try and squeeze Ecclesiastes into some psychological model of grief today, but you know that, that sometimes unbelievers are better observers of the human condition than some Christians take the time to be. And you know that if you've been with us this fall, it, it really is the unbelieving worldview. It's the secular search for significance that Solomon is deconstructing in this book. Ecclesiastes is a work of apologetic. The, the preacher is trying on the arguments of the skeptic, the, the unbeliever's search for meaning in a life of materialism. 
What good is there if all we can see is all there is? And so he traced down the blind alleys. He tried everything, laughter and labor and sex and drinking and philosophy and philanthropy and wisdom itself and justice and order. But he tells us that when they're confined to this passing world, they all eventually lead to nowhere. And there comes a time when you have to come to grips with that. By the end of chapter 6, it seems that Solomon has come to the stage of acceptance. Life and death go on. The candle burns out eventually. And there are some things that you just can't change, that you just can't keep from happening, and so what do you do? Now Solomon's answer is not anger or depression, it is wisdom. Not just the wisdom of this world, but a wisdom above the sun. That's where he takes us first. In these, these closing verses of chapter 6, he takes us to the wisdom of humility. Our first point today, the wisdom of humility. It really is the inevitable outcome of the journey that Solomon's been on up to this point. Actually, these last few verses in chapter 6 do not give us any new information at all. Uh, they are a summary of what Solomon has already seen, but packaged together in a way to get us moving in a new direction. The, uh, the Jewish scribes, the Hebrew scribes of the 10th century pointed out that Hebrews, uh, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, fall directly in the middle of the book. And there's a shift in emphasis. Going forward, Solomon will leave aside his search for significance and begin telling us more and more how we ought to live in this world. But he begins here with the wisdom of humility. He's telling us what he's learned so far about our place in a world that's outside of our control. So you remember that back in chapter 1, we, we heard when he told us, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Same idea here, but now there's a twist. Now there is an above-the-sun perspective. Now we learn that whatever has come to pass has already been named. That's creation language. It's language of ordering. In other words, everything has been arranged. It's been planned. All that exists and all that happens has been spoken into existence by the God who orders all things by the word of his power. And the first place that wisdom shows up has to do with whether you rail against that thought or whether you embrace it. Whether God's power is an obstacle to your happiness or whether it is the beginning point. Isn't it interesting how consistently we manage to find fault with God when we feel like we haven't been given a fair shake in this life? Isn't it interesting how the first excuse for sinful behavior ever uttered in the history of the universe was aimed at making God the reason for wrongdoing? Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And it's not a new problem. God called Moses, and Moses said, Lord, you don't want me. <laughs> I can't even talk right. I've got this, this a speech problem. And God had to remind Moses who it was that had made his faltering lips and who it was that makes lame legs and blind eyes. It's why Isaiah rebuked Israel in chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. 
Ecclesiastes 6.10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Solomon speaks as somebody who has learned, maybe the hard way, uh, that all the arguments we might muster against God's sovereignty eventually fall flat. Better to admit that God is in control and to walk as wisely as we can in light of that fact. Better to accept the wisdom of humility and to begin with God's providence as our guidepost. But you need to know that this is a diagnostic tool. When you respond to the fact of God's sovereignty, it doesn't make someone a believer, but it does reveal a believing heart or an unbelieving heart. The only ones who can be content with acknowledging God's sovereignty over their existence are those who have already believed that they can trust Him. In 1870, Hudson Taylor had already been a missionary in China for 10 years. He'd already been married to his wife Marie for 12 years, and together they had had eight children and buried four of them. Well, in June of 1870, Marie gave birth to one more child, a ninth, a boy named Noel. And within two weeks, both Noel and Marie would be dead. Noel from malnutrition and Marie from cholera. And a few days after Marie's death, Taylor wrote these words, I cannot describe to you my feelings. I feel like a person stunned with a blow or recovering from a faint and as yet but partially conscious. My father has ordered it, so therefore I know it is, it must be best. And I thank him for so ordering it. This is a diagnostic tool because when you hear those words, you have already made up your mind. You have already decided whether Hudson Taylor was a spiritual giant or a brainwashed fool. You've already decided whether he was an inspiration or an idiot for trusting his life and his loss to the Lord. I think Solomon would say that at the very least, Hudson Taylor was a very wise man. You know, it's true that so far at this point in Ecclesiastes, Solomon hasn't gone as far as the Apostle Paul. He hasn't gone so far as to tell us that everything God does is good, but he is telling us so far that everything that is is something that God does. And he wants us not to, not to waste our words pushing against, trying to find fault with God's providence. He's urging us to pursue the wisdom of humility. Now that brings us to the burning questions of verse 12. So what? What's next? Who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And the Proverbs in chapter 7 are aimed at answering that question, and they do so by urging us to embrace the blessing of boundaries. Our second point, the blessing of boundaries. Proverbs are hard to get a handle on sometimes. Sometimes the best we can do is, is bundle them into groups and try and find common themes. That's what we're going to do today. But you need to know that all these Proverbs, in some ways, speak to our human limitations in one way or another. Verses 1 to 4, Solomon points to the boundary, the limitation of our mortality. Verse 2, it is better 
to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Verse 2 is like the theme verse of this this first cluster of Proverbs, verses 1 to 4. In fact, verse 2 is is the way that we can understand that shocking statement at the end of verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointments. We say, oh, of course, yes, yes. Uh, dry, dusty, Middle East, yeah, we understand that, and, and we're ready for something nice and gentle, and he comes uh, with a burner in the day of death and the day of birth. Ooh, really? <laughs> what do we do with that? You know, as Christians, we have this impulse, we want to we leapfrog to the gospel, we want to get to the New Testament and make sense of what Solomon is telling us here. And actually, that's not a bad application at the end of the day. It's not stretching the truth to acknowledge that the same Holy Spirit who uh, inspired Ecclesiastes also inspired Paul to write to the Philippians and to tell them that, uh, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and actually to die and be with the Lord is very much more better. It's, uh, it's something that we acknowledge as Christians, maybe even a truth that Solomon himself didn't understand when he was writing these words, that, that idea that the day of death is better than the day of birth for those who die in Christ. Thomas Boston wrote about believers. He said, in the day of their birth, they're born to die, but in the day of their death, they die to live. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, says the psalmist. Precious in the saints is released from this world of sin and suffering and entrance through death. Now that Christ has defanged our greatest enemy, entrance through death into the bliss of eternal presence of the Lord. It's true. But Solomon has something more immediate in mind here. He wants us to see the value of learning how to live through remembering that we're all dying. That's what it means when he says, this is the end of all mankind. Death is the end of all mankind. When you go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting, you are confronted with these realities. You're made to see where you're headed. You're, you're made to evaluate the way you're living and what you've been doing and the things that you believe and the truths that you hold on to. You know the way that coming to the end of one period of your, of your life makes you reevaluate the way that you've been living and behaving in that period. It's why college students reevaluate their friendships in their last semester differently than they evaluate their friendships in their first semester. It's why when you move house, you begin to wonder, what are your neighbors going to think of you? How will they remember you? And have you ever been the aroma of Christ in your neighborhood that they would see it and acknowledge? They're different than the other people on this street. It's the way that when a loved one gets a terminal diagnosis, you immediately begin to think of all the things that you wish you would have said to them already, all the ways that you wish you would have treated them already. Solomon wants us to live with our own end in view. He wants us to reconcile with our earthly limits that God has placed on our lives so that we would be sobered into wise living rather than foolishly wasting the days that have been allotted to us. Several years ago, there was a a couple that visited Redeemer Church and worshipped with us because they were visiting with another family that were were members here. 
and they were visiting, they were in the area because the husband of this couple had a, a break for a few weeks from chemotherapy before he began his next round of treatment, and they wanted to come and they wanted to visit with their friends while they had the chance. And so I preached that week, and I got to meet the man, and I uh, shook his hand, and we talked a little bit, and I, uh, I heard later that weekend that he had died in the middle of the week. And it made me wonder if I would have preached that sermon differently if I had known that it was the last sermon that somebody was ever going to hear. It made me wonder if he listened to that sermon differently, knowing that it very well might have been. It makes you wonder if you would listen differently. It makes you wonder how you would worship and how you would pray and how you would witness if you recognize that tomorrow is not guaranteed to you. You know, some people are confronted with mortality and they live in denial. Verse 4, the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. They drink and they party and they laugh just as a way to ignore everything that's around them. Other people respond in anger. Think of those immortal words from Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Solomon isn't, isn't denying that death is tragic, that it's painful, both for those who experience it and for those who are left. He's not minimizing that. Neither is he against feasting and rejoicing at appropriate times. He's not against a, a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner. But he wants us to understand that this life is temporary. He wants us to consider how to leave a good name, how to be the precious aroma of Christ while we live in these dying bodies. He wants us to accept the boundary of our mortality so that we would live in such a way as to make the most of it. He also wants us to understand the boundary of our wisdom. See this in verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of the fools. Now, I think if, if this is what we were all already naturally inclined to, Solomon wouldn't have to write this. He wouldn't have to push us in this direction. But actually, I've never met anyone who enjoys being rebuked. <laughs> I know a few of you saints who are mature enough to know that it's good for you, and you can handle it, and you can deal with it well. But nobody wakes up in the morning and says, gee, what I think I'd like today is to be put in my place. I want somebody to show me how wrong I am and, and how terribly I've been acting. That would be wonderful if somebody could do that for me today. We, we don't do that. We're not naturally inclined to admitting that our own wisdom and our own living is limited and that we need the input of other people to help us grow in the Lord. It's not our natural impulse. Luckily for us, we live where we do in the age in which we live, and so we have created whole platforms where we can silence and unfollow anybody who disagrees with us. And we can filter our, our news feed according to our favorite source. We can go and find a church and a preacher who will tell us exactly what we want to hear. If we disagree with the advice of our parents, we can file for emancipation. We can find any number of ways of living inside the echo chamber of what we already think is right. 
we have created psychological models of self-actualization, and we have elevated them to such heights that anybody who offers us correction, we can label as emotionally abusive. We can tell ourselves that they're just a narcissist, and that gives us an, an excuse to cut them out of our lives because we don't need that kind of negativity. We live in a culture that is increasingly allergic to anything that even smells like admonition. Instead, we live uh, on a constant drip feed of personal affirmations and cheesy pop anthems and vacuous messages beamed into the heads of our children to tell them the most important truth of all, that they are enough. And so the animated Disney princess sings, you are the one you've been waiting for all of your life. And we take our toddlers and we plop them down in front of the speaker and we say, Alexa, play the song of fools on repeat, please. <laughs> it's what we do. We have filled our ears with the cackle of fools congratulating us on how enlightened and how self-sufficient we are. And it's all so many thorns under the cooking pot. Do you get the analogy there? You understand the imagery. It's brief. It's bright. It's loud. Completely ineffective. A quick flash of flames that dies before it can even warm your dinner. James chapter 3 verse 17 tells us that the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. But you will never be willing to hear the wisdom from above if you think that you already have a limitless supply on your own. On the other hand, you can learn a lot about someone by the way that they receive a rebuke. Whether there is anyone in your life with whom you disagree and yet whom you still listen to. Whether you're willing to admit the boundary of your own wisdom. Well, then in verses 7 to 12, the Holy Spirit also calls us to embrace the boundary of our time boundary of our time. Now here the, the central theme shows up in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. It's an encouragement to wait. This is a lesson aimed at teaching finite creatures who are stuck in their own slice of time and space, and yet they're wondering, they're waiting to find out what the next paragraph of God's story for them might be. Now, we can't make the clock tick any faster by our yearning, though. And so while we wait, we find many ways to, uh, to put things into our own control, to take matters in our own hands. There's the angle of corruption in verse 7. There's the anger of verse 9. There's the nostalgia of verse 10. Different attempts, but but all doing the same thing, trying to replace submission to God's timing really with, with pursuit of our own selfish ends. And if you think hard enough, I bet you can, you can remember, you can think, you know someone who fits each of those scenarios, each of those ways of dealing with your own slice of time, and maybe you're the one who fits. Maybe with verse 7, you, you know that two-faced person who gets in good with the right Christian circles, and they do it by learning the lingo. You learn the right kinds of prayers to pray. You learn the right kind of sins to be offended at, at least in public. 
you learn the right way to, to navigate in a Christian world and you get in good with people that you want to emulate and you, you project a sanctification of somebody who's been walking with Christ 20 years longer than you really have. In the worst cases, these are the wolves dressed as sheep. And they're the ones who are charming their way closer to the children's ministries. Charming their way closer to the finances. Most of the time, it's just the run-of-the-mill prideful person. The person in the church that likes to have their ego stroked. The person who, who wants a little more influence, a little more control than they ought to have at this stage in their life. And so you'd, you'd go around what you should be doing. You, you find different ways to get ahead. You give up integrity for the sake of gaining a little more influence. Or verse 9, you, you know the impatient, angry person. And they justify their consistent irritation by saying that, you know, they're just passionate about things that, that really matter. It's probably a good thing, actually, that they take things so, just some things so seriously, but you've never yet come across a topic that they didn't take seriously, that they weren't upset about. And the more you watch them, you realize that you get the impression that they're really just self-centered. They really just can't handle life when it doesn't happen according to their plan and according to their schedule. And anger has taken permanent residence in their hearts. That's what Solomon says. Anger lodges in the bosom of fools. It lives there rent free. It's their primary mode of operating in the world. Then again, verse 10, there's the Christian who isn't angry. They're not fake, but they are always pining for the good old days. Oh, those days when being a Christian was easier. Those days when it was easier to raise children in the faith, you know, before social media. Or before the sexual revolution. Before television. While prohibition was still in place. You can keep moving the goalpost as long as you want to. You can keep going back one generation at a time, and you can find in every age of the church people who are anxiously, nervously looking backward rather than looking forward and imagining that growth in Christ is just a matter of being born at some different time or in some different place or some different circumstance, and they are discontent with where the Lord has placed them. Far better, says Solomon, verses 11 and 12, far better to walk in God's wisdom, far better to know our limits, to treat wise living as a commodity like money that you can save or you can spend as the situation demands, but you will never understand the real value of wisdom if you expect it to make you the captain of your own destiny, the master of your own fate. That title belongs to the Lord who's named and ordered all things. It belongs solely to the God who's placed us within these boundaries of life and death and wisdom and folly and time and space as he chooses. And so here we are, finite creatures with eternity in our hearts, longing to find out something better, yearning to see something bigger than ourselves. And it brings us back to Solomon's second question. Chapter 6, verse 12. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And the answer, it should be obvious by now, is only God. Only the Lord himself who has named and ordered all things and placed us where he 
has decided. Only the Lord can tell us what's next. And so the wisest thing we can possibly do is to trust him. To learn to believe in his goodness implicitly. To find peace and wisdom under the shelter of his sovereignty. This is our final point. The shelter of his sovereignty. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is also old material. Uh, You may remember in chapter 1, this thought appeared with a, a more fatalistic flourish to it. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. It's all a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. But here, it's different. It's an above-the-sun perspective. And so here in chapter 7, Phil Riken says, we shouldn't see verse 13 as a statement of fatalism, but as a statement of Calvinism. (laughs) I like that. God is the one who orders all things well. He's the one who made Moses' faltering lips. He's the one who ordained Paul's thorn in the flesh. He is the one who has written every plot twist and unexpected providence that has brought you to exactly where you are in Christ at this moment. And if we are in Christ, it means that we don't have the option of being thankful for the plot twist that makes sense to us and rejecting the ones that don't. Solomon is acknowledging that the Lord is in control even over the things in our lives that seem deformed, crooked, that cross purposes to where we think we ought to be going. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Why has he done it? Notice the language of purpose, so that. He's made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, God gives us just enough to know that he's in control, but not enough to know what comes next for each one of us, and that is by design. That's where he wants us. Earlier I shared a quote from Hudson Taylor, the the father of modern missions. Hudson Taylor is also an early proponent of of what we call faith-based mission work. These are the missionaries who raise enough funds to get them into the mission field, but not enough to complete the work that they hope to be doing. And once Hudson Taylor was asked, isn't this a a really difficult way to do ministry? Isn't this rather anxiety-producing? Isn't that hard for him? And here's how Hudson Taylor replied. He said, as a rule, prayer is answered and funds come in. But... If we are kept waiting, the spiritual blessing that is the outcome is far more precious than the exemption from the trial. In other words, he's saying it's by design. It's a good thing that God's people are kept waiting for God's provision. And even though we know that we can trust that it's coming, we don't always know which direction to look. This is the same lesson we learn when we learn to walk with Christ by faith. John chapter 10, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a statement of security. 
that he keeps us, he leads us, he feeds us like a shepherd, he protects us, he guards us, he takes us to himself. He has so ordered our salvation that those who trust in him can never be lost, but then again you've got those circumstances, don't you? The loss of a relationship, the death of a loved one, that accident or that illness that leaves you disfigured or disabled. And on top of that, you've got the recurring reminder of your indwelling sin, and sometimes it could make you wonder how you could possibly go on in faith without already seeing the promises of God fulfilled in your life. It's by design. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are not supposed to see the next steps that the Lord has ordained for us, but it's enough to trust that He has ordained them. It's enough to learn that through faith in Jesus Christ, our Father is good. It's enough to learn that He can be trusted. It's enough to learn that He will provide. And it's enough to learn that there is nothing that we can do to change that. Join me in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your sovereign purposes accomplished in the lives of your people. We thank you for faith as a gift from you by the working of your Holy Spirit to draw us to Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that as we come uh, to your table, those who know you and trust you would be confirmed and would be built up in the assurance of their faith. And we pray that those who haven't yet trusted in you would be drawn near, that they would see and, and believe that you can be trusted and so entrust themselves to you, even though they don't know what the future holds, trusting that you are the one who cares for your own. We pray in Jesus' name.